This podcast is reserved for audiences 18 years and older. Hello, and welcome to Leather Talk with Mr. Bullet Leather 2020. I'm your host, Brandon. Today we are listening back to our live broadcast from the Bullet Bar at our event called Leather Together. Now, back in March, Queen Anna Elgos and I hosted this virtual slash in-person event where we spoke on the topics of leather history, kink and BDSM, as well as a discussion with a panel of leather title holders. Today's episode will be a broadcasting of our discussion on leather history with Drew Kramer. Now, do keep in mind that this was recorded live at the Bullet Bar, so you will hear people in the background whenever I'm speaking into the microphone. Uh, But the bar was packed that day. It was awesome. And we actually held a live item raffle at the bar. And by the end of the night, we had raised $1,500 for Reach LA, which is an inner city youth program in Los Angeles, as well as for the LELC Cares, which is a leather organization formed to be an outreach to the community in times of crisis. If you'd like to learn more about those organizations, you can look back into last year's episodes where we speak thoroughly about them. However, I will also do a rebroadcast of those later this week and next, just for those of you who maybe haven't heard about them yet. And while we're here on the topic, I did want to personally thank everyone involved with this event. We couldn't have done it without our amazing guests. And for all of those who donated to the cause, and especially for all of those who came out in person that day to help out with donations and the prizes, Pup Red, Jackie, Miss Cassie, Pup Star Orion, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are all incredible. And I know that I might be missing a few names out there, but I just wanted to extend our gratitude for everyone involved with that night, whether you were there in person or virtually. You truly made this whole thing possible, and you really made a huge difference in our community. Now, with that said, I hope you all enjoy this week's episode of Leather Talk, a discussion of leather history with Drew Kramer. Hi, Drew. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Sorry to be here in Palm Springs and not with you there at the Bullet Bar. I heard there's some fun activities going down in Palm Springs, so I don't blame you. <laughs> I should have been over there. <laughs> we should just do this from Palm Springs. I, I, I picture L.A. this weekend as just being like tumbleweeds <laughs> rolling down Sunset Boulevard. Traffic was a breeze. No wonder. We're in Palm Springs. <laughs> Uh, Well, today we wanted to talk a little bit about leather history, and the reason why I had you come on, Drew, is because we actually had a three-part episode on my podcast called (laughs) Leather Talk, and I just felt like we couldn't get enough of you. Um, There was just so so many uh, different perspectives that you provided me as someone who's kind of new and young to the leather community that I I just thought were so valuable. First off, before we get started, uh, why don't we do a, a little intro? Um, could you just maybe let us know, you know, how long you've been in the community, um, your titles, your blood type, your social security number? 
all of that good stuff. <laughs> uh, my name is Drew Kramer, and I like the pronouns he and his. Um, I am 56 years old. I live in Palm Springs, California. Most of my adult life and most of my interactions, entry into the world of leather, took place in New York City, um, where I lived from 1989 till 2003. And uh, two dogs, a man I love, and a lovely trailer home here in Palm Springs. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, let's get started with leather history. I mean, for those who maybe are just logging in or listening to this kind of thing for the first time, what is leather? How did it come to be? Where did it start? I mean, to your own knowledge. But I, I think that I've been thinking about this a lot, as I do, since you sort of like invited me and introduced the topic. And the tricky thing about history is it's hard. I mean, you could. Think of like, I don't know, studying the Boston Tea Party, you know, in uh, school or whatever. And that sort of like top down, who were the principal people involved, you know, whose names got in the history book. That's one way of doing that. But that really doesn't describe like leather history, which is sort of like individual people's lives, you know, and where they found themselves and what they found themselves to be doing. And, you know, like significant things that happened to them. And I think that the best way to wrap our heads around what leather history is, is when something takes place having to do with leather that absolutely could not, for whatever reason, have taken place 10 years before, right? And the first thing that comes to mind as far as that goes, is a bunch of years ago, the 60th anniversary of the Satyrs Motorcycle Club, right? There was this exhibition about the Satyrs down in this museum in Long Beach, which I, I went down to. And the thing that just sort of like stopped me in my tracks was this photograph, right? And it was taken, I think, think in 1962 and it was the satyr's christmas party and what was in the photograph was a bunch of guys wearing white jeans and motorcycle jackets in this rented hall somewhere in los angeles and they're all slow dancing together and that was like almost an entire decade before stonewall could that have taken place 10 years earlier in 1951 Absolutely not. You know, homosexual men in 1951, their lives were lonely and terrifying, you know? Right. It was a totally, uh, totally different time. And yeah, just that the image of you experiencing that, like, I mean, I feel like I have very similar experiences. I went to go see the leather archives at USC, you know, before the pandemic. And you see images, like for me, like for you, it was like the 50s. For me, it was like the 70s and the 80s. And you see pictures of, of you know, leathermen and, and uh, just people in the leather community and these clippings of, you know, Mr. Drummer 89 or whatever it be. And I'm like, wow, like, I, I'm amazed. I get chills. And 
I mean, what did that do for you personally? Did that catalyze anything in your life as far as like, I mean, was that your first exposure to leather? It, it definitely not my first exposure, but it, it, what it did for me looking at that photograph, you know, and a couple of the men in the photograph were like looking right into the camera. Right. So you're like looking into their eyes and they're looking into your eyes. And I just felt this sense of kinship with them, you know, and even though they're probably long dead, you know, if you're 40 in 1961, well, maybe there's a couple of 107 year olds out there, but I doubt it. Right. And yet I just had the sense that if I were to sit down and talk to them, they would know a lot about me and I would know a lot about them before I even opened my mouth. So you're giving me, okay, and it's hot in this bar and I'm getting chills again. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> but no, I, I totally agree with you where there, it's, it's almost like we're, when you enter into the leather scene, no matter where you are in the timeline, somehow you're part of a legacy. You're part of a history. You're part of a family that's always been, right? And it's funny that you say that because I always tell myself, like, I, was, I always kind of joke around, like, oh, I was like a gay man in the 70s because I have nostalgia for things that I was not present for. Like, I know I wasn't there, maybe in another life, but just to know that you're a part of something, you know, it's so much bigger than just the sex. Although, let's not forget about the sex. <laughs> And, and, you know, and also, I mean, you can think about like the mirror image of that, right? You, Brandon, are a leather man. 20 years from now, maybe there will be a young man who starts to think of himself as a leather man. And if you and he were to sit down and talk to each other, it would be the same thing. So it's not only like, the people who have come before us, it also includes the people who are going to come after us, you know? And yeah, absolutely. That sense of kinship, brotherhood, siblinghood, whatever, like outside of time. Wow. Mind blown. Mind blown, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. As much as, you know, we do talk about like this kind of being a part of legacy and the kinship and like finding your people. I mean, there are some major differences, right, from the past into present. I mean, we grow as a community. Um, we change as a community. I mean, I personally think that if we stop growing and stop changing, then where are we going, right? But I'm curious to know then what, okay, what was your first leather experience and how might it differ from maybe someone else's leather experience coming into it today? I think I, uh, what I think I would count as my first leather experience, because I was just sort of like, as, you know, a 13 year old, or even as a nine or 10 year old, right? I was really drawn to things having to do with domination and bondage involving men, which, you know, when you're 10 years old, you have no idea what the fuck that's all about, right? But when I was 17, by a weird set of circumstances, and this would be in 1982, I found this whole stack of drummer magazines, and I read through them, and I found out that like, not only was I not the only one, but there were so many of us out there, 
right? In the back of Drummer, there was this whole listing across the country and around the world of leather bars and leather clubs and organizations. And, you know, we had our shit together enough to actually like publish a magazine, right? So I was like, oh my God, there's this whole thing out there that I can be a part of, right? Not right away because I'm 17 years old, but I just have to like bide my time. And, you know, when I can go out into the world, I can find it, right? And that's pretty much how things played out. You know, when I walked into my first leather bar years later. And I think, like, as to your question of, like, what's changed? Everything and nothing at all, right? Because what leather was in 1982, it was a way for gay men, largely, to like find each other, gay men who were had a different than normal take on sexuality, you know, even different from most other gay men. How are you going to find each other? Well, we do that by sort of like signaling wearing leather, right? And since then, and into the present day, I think that that's basically like what leather does, right? I mean, there was this phenomenon in the 1980s uh, and the 1990s, where lesbian feminism had sort of like boxed itself into a corner where anything male or male-associated, men were the oppressors, right? Men oppressed women. And so anything male-associated had to absolutely be rejected, right? But that meant for a lot of butch lesbians and for lesbians who were liked their expressions of sexuality with other lesbians to be dominant and submissive on a, on a dominant and submissive axis or dangerous or risky or they were shut out right and instead of being shut out they started wearing leather and that led them to be able to find each other you know and even today if you have a queer person or even a straight person, you know, who just like has a really different take that's not, you know, widespread in the wider world and may even be like condemned and misunderstood and feared and hated by the wider world, leather is a good way to find your people, you know? Right, right. It's interesting that you say that. So initially... I mean, at least from your experience, leather bars were a place for predominantly like gay cis men. Is that right? That's it. And so at the point of women coming into the leather scene, I mean, was there, I mean, how, how was, how, like, what was the dynamic there for women coming to the a leather space where, I mean, predominantly men, at least in their minds, it was for them, right? Like, at least in their heads, was there any conflict there? Uh, yes and no, because, I mean, like, here's a story. Uh, like, 20 years ago, maybe, I was at this big, largely cis gay male uh, leather event. Then it was uh, largely cis gay male leather event called Mid-Atlantic Leather, right, in Washington, D.C. And I was hanging out in the cigar tent, and all of a sudden, into the cigar tent came three people, two of them I knew, 
One of them was this woman from New York City named Lolita and her boy, Boy Meat, and this really big bodybuilder guy. And initially, like there was this like buzz, right? Where a couple of, you know, the gay leather men hanging out in the cigar tent were like, oh my God, oh my God, there's a girl in here. Oh my God, oh my God, right? So then Lolita takes the big bodybuilder guy who she had just bought in the boy auction, right? Throws him up against the wall, takes out this huge flogger and begins wailing on him like full force, <laughs> no warm up. And the guy just really quickly like, oh, oh my God, oh wow, oh my God, right? Everything changed. Everything, everybody was just sort of like, ooh, respect, <laughs> you know? And even though I, you know, many, many other gay leather men, the first time you see a woman in a leather bar, it's like, uh-oh, uh-oh, this is wrong. We can't have that. You know, we've got to do something about that. But, you know, depending on the individual woman, you know, Lolita was always and forever welcome at the lure in New York City because Lolita was and is a leather woman and she lived it and it is her life. And, you know, in a way, I have much more in common with Lolita and many other leather women and leather non binary people that I've met than I do with many gay men who are not necessarily into leather, you know? I, I would much rather, uh, and I seek out, like, sharing space with anybody in the leather community much more so than I do with just your average vanilla gay man. Yeah, absolutely. And I've said this before on my podcast, something like similar to, to what your story is like sort of illustrating is that leather comes from the inside. Because I remember stepping into a leather bar for the first time and I immediately knew that this is where I belonged and I wasn't wearing any leather. But somehow there's something inside of you that either has always been there or just been awakened that, like, like you said, you find your people, right? Yeah that speaks volumes. So what is one of maybe your fondest memories from like, your youth in the leather scene? I mean, how old were you in the first place? When I first walked into a leather bar, I guess I was, I think it was my, my first year living in Philadelphia. So that would be 1988. And that would make me 23 years old. First time I Gosh, found baby. It. Uh, <laughs> and what yeah. was that like? Yeah. Was that mind blowing? Were you scared? Were you excited? It was, uh, yeah, I was, well, a lot of my anxiety went to, you know, because remember my introduction to this whole thing was like a stack of drummer magazines, right? And a lot of what took up space in drummer magazines were these erotic fiction stories where a uh, handsome college wrestling coach is abducted and sent to a training camp 
somewhere in the American South, you know, and he's going to be sold on the auction block, you know, to a leather master and live in a cage for the rest of his life or, you know, and I didn't realize that that was like fiction. And I thought it was, you know, firsthand accounts. So I was like, okay, here, you know, I, when I went into the bike stop in Philadelphia, part of me thought, well, I'm never, you know, this is the last the world's going to see of me. You know, it's, it's, it's um, a dangerous world that I'm entering, but oh my God, I've got to enter it. And no, it was just a bunch of guys, you know, um, really sexy guys who were embodying all of my jerk-off fantasies over the years. And here they were like in the flesh, wearing cowhide, and it was paradise. Was that in Philadelphia? That that was in Philadelphia. That was in yeah. Philadelphia. Okay. And if I remember correctly, it would be the bike stop. Is that right? Yep. That's Can it. you describe the bike stop to our listeners and what it's like going down into the inferno, if you will? Yeah, because it's it's and I, I think I was there like a couple of times before I figured this out, right? Because you go into the bike stop and you're basically going into a bar right? There's a big, long bar running the length of the place from front to back. You know, I think there's like a motorcycle hanging over the bar. and But there was never really very many people there. And I would sort of like go and I'd get my beer and I'd sit in the corner and, you know, like wait for nothing to happen. But nothing was happening other than, you know, guys coming in and talking to the bartender, right? But then I noticed that people would like go to the back of the bar and I thought they were going to the bathroom, but they never came out again, right? So I was like, uh-huh, something, some, you know, as I go into Scooby-Doo mode and I'm like, oh, there's a mystery here. Let's search for clues. So I go to the back of the bar and there's this unmarked door, right? This old, like, wooden door painted black. And you open it. It's like, creaks open. And there's these wooden, bare wooden stairs, like going down into darkness. And I go down the stairs into darkness. And I discovered that underneath, you know, in the cellar, underneath the bike stop uh, was another bar. And that was called the pit stop. And it's just about pitch black down there. There's like a light bulb hanging over the cash register at the bar. And that's it. And it's filled with smoke and it's packed solid with men, right? Oh my God, you're describing my wet dreams right now, Drew. Okay, keep going. (laughs) No, absolutely. And, you know, the thing that I remember most about it was, you know, there was music playing, right? But pretty much you couldn't hear because all these guys, you know, in this, echoing basement they're just talking and laughing you know and growling at you as you you know brush against them you know trying to get to the bar to get a beer uh and you know it's all grabby and gropy but there was the sense of you know especially the first time as if i had walked into an intimate gathering right where everybody knew everybody and first time they saw each other after a long time separation right but it wasn't that it was just like these were leathermen and this was their space and you know one one thing that i think uh 
people nowadays might not appreciate. Um, but back then, especially, being a gay leather man was not something that you let be known among your gay friends, right? Because leather was viewed with suspicion and fear, and it was looked at as being like sick in you know a mental health kind of way. Now this is even um, from the gay community, like as a by and large. It, especially from the gay community, you know? And so it felt like being a part of like this big secret club, right? Although instead of having like secret handshakes, we wore our keys on key rings, you know, hanging off our a belt loop, right? And we wore boots when other people weren't wearing boots. So this was like a means of survival for you, right? Because like you said, especially back then, like being gay, first of all, was like a taboo thing in and of itself, right? And now to be like kinky on top of it, how do you find those people without getting yourself into into trouble there? Yeah. And, And especially from the gay rights movement, from political gays at that time, the emphasis was on let's show straight America, that we are just like them. We want the exact same things that they want. We want a nice house with a tree in the front yard and a white picket fence, and we're just like you, right? Contrary to that message, you know, hi, I'm a leather man, and I like fist fucking, right? No, no, you know, record scratch, right? not with the program, not going to help us advance politically. We're never going to get equal rights that way. So there was a, like a political element to the hostility that gay men held their gay leather brothers in. Now, did those two things collide? I mean, like you have one side of the community trying to like assimilate and the other side saying like giving the straight world like a big F you, right? The, the, uh, Boy, did they ever. Um, The 1993 March on Washington for LGBT, then just lesbian and gays, sorry, uh, civil rights. The leather community basically contacted the organizers of this nationwide march, right, and said, hi, we want to have a leather contingent in the March on Washington. And the organizers of the march said, no fucking way ever at all no absolutely fucking (laughs) is that because it was so taboo like to put that out in the open i mean it it was just sort of like it was a march for civil rights right and it was viewed by the organizers and by the majority you know of the lgbt community as like sending exactly the wrong message that is exactly not the message that we want to send, you know? Oh, Um, I see. It was going against the agenda of what the whole purpose was. Well, you know, supposedly what the whole purpose was for that kind of assimilation and and acceptance. Right. But uh, the leather community at the time, they kept fighting and pushing and demanding and eventually, uh, they got it. And that actually was when 
what we now know as the leather pride flag, they marched behind a giant leather pride flag. And that's when that sort of like was sprung on an unsuspecting world for the first time. Uh, now, the, the, the leather pride flag. Okay. Well, well, let's put a, like, hold on for a second. <laughs> so the leather pride flag, that's always like the question they ask, right? At the um, competition, it's always like a trick question. Like, what is a leather pride flag? What does it mean? And like, try to see if you like try to make something up that doesn't exist. I mean, from my understanding, the, the colors and everything, they don't really mean anything. But what you're saying is like, this was like the debut of that symbol as a, like, yeah, I, no, nobody had ever seen it before. So there you are, you know, coming from L.A., Florida, Oklahoma, wherever, to the 1993 March on Washington, which was huge. It was hundreds of thousands of people, right, participating in that march. And you hear there's a leather contingent, and you want to march with the leather contingent, and the leather contingent is marching behind this big flag, you know, with those colors that we know so well and the big heart, you know, in the middle of it too. And, you know, if you ask like, oh, wow, that's really cool. What is that? You were told, oh, that's the leather pride flag. And after the 1993 March, that's when everybody was like, I want one of those, right? And I have a leather bar and how am I going to let people know when they're you know driving by my leather bar that it's a leather bar well i can hang up this leather pride flag right and that's that's really how it like caught on and, and came to be oh my god drew stop giving me chills stop it <laughs> no wow um i can't tell you how powerful that story is the, the pride flag i mean okay we're here at the bullet bar and call me naive i had no idea the bullet had any like um, relation at all to leather until one day I was sitting down in the back of the bar and I look up and I see this flag behind me hanging out out there. I'm like, oh my God, this is what I've been looking for. And I, I can't tell you how powerful it is just to think of the concept of like, here we are, a community of people that have been in the shadows going into secret doors into, you know, the underneath the bar just to gather and get together. We have to have these secret codes. And now for the first time, somehow the community as a whole comes together and marches out on the street with a symbol that's unifying. And I mean, how did that change the dynamic of the community? And where did it go from there? Uh, it, it just, well, number one, it allowed you know, because like if you think about leather in, I don't know, 1975, right? You're probably talking about fewer than 5,000 gay men, mostly in the United States, also possibly in the UK, Germany, Holland, you know, the Netherlands, right? But not a lot of people, you know? And it was only like 1969, uh, Larry Townsend published this book called The Leatherman's Handbook. A lot of it involves buying a motorcycle and riding a motorcycle. You know? I, I have that. That was my first um, like research book. I, re I remember finding that on the Internet. I was like, I need this book. And oh, yeah. Oh, but like, you know, until that time, I, I don't think there were very many people, even though like 
I ride a motorcycle and I'm gay and I ride my motorcycle with a bunch of other gays, right? And what do we wear? We wear our leather jackets, right? And there were, I'm into BDSM and I'm a gay. And, you know, part of the look is wearing this leather jacket and, you know, this odd sort of hat, you know, that everybody seems to be wearing. But I don't know how many of those men would call themselves leather men, you know. But when that book came out, oh, oh, there's a name for what I am. You know, the, the, the same thing happened with, uh, you know, there were a lot of gay men who didn't necessarily have washboard abs, you know, and wore a beard before they started calling themselves bears. And that was because there was one and actually there were a few books published like in the 80s and 90s. It was basically like a gay man who's a big, hefty man who wears a beard, basically saying, hi, I'm a bear. You know, that's who I am. Um, and even though all gay men, according to, you know, the porn movies that I see uh, and the magazines, all gay men are supposed to be really thin and hairless and barely weeks past their 18th birthday. That's totally not me, but hey, here I am, and I don't feel bad because I'm not that, right? And I think the Leatherman's Handbook, 1969, a lot of people now sort of had something they can wrap their heads around, and, you know, it's a way to identify, right? But we're not talking about a bunch of people, you know, because it was still looked down upon, you know, especially by the wider LGBT community. Uh, after the 93 March on Washington, there was tons more visibility. And it's, it's after that that a lot of groups formed across the country, which instead of being really secretive and known about only by word of mouth, it was just sort of like, hi, we're a leather organization. And what we do is if you are interested in leather, uh, but don't have any experience, you're you know, really curious about it, come to our meetings, you know, and we actually have workshops on how to do bondage and, you know, flogging and everything else like that. Um, that had never happened before, you know, and yeah, so a lot before of people, it was like word of mouth. And now you have like organizations and it's becoming more widespread. And I guess, would you say acceptable to a lot more people? Uh, yeah. Yeah, where it's just looked at as another part of the LGBT community, you know? Another thing that really, really, really changed perceptions of leather was the AIDS crisis during the 1980s and the 1990s. And at first, because what gay leather men did with each other sexually was already looked at as dangerous, right? Now it was seen as being even more dangerous. And if you are going to do things like that, there must really be something wrong with you, right? But, but because part of the political dynamic of AIDS was that the straight world turned their backs on us, right? All those organizations, you know, the charities that were set up to help people in need, because it was gay men dying of AIDS was not there for them. And I think in our podcast, you mentioned that during that time, there were very, very few funeral homes 
who were willing to take the bodies of gay men who had died who had died of AIDS, right? They they just would not do it. And so what the LGBT community had to do back then was to basically build from the ground up our own organizations, right? And that's where AIDS Project Los Angeles and GMHC in New York City and uh, the Shanti Project in San Francisco, you know, they all started as people getting together in somebody's living room and saying like, oh my God, you know, we've got to do this. You know, we've got to do something. And how are you going to pay for that, right? Here's how. In 1980, just like the mid-Atlantic states, you know, from Boston to Washington, D.C., there were thousands, you know, there was literally like more than 2,000 leather clubs and organizations, right? Motorcycle clubs, uniform clubs, whatever. And if you think about it, every one of those clubs had a treasurer and a checking account. And so what they could do is they could have a fundraiser and they could take the money that they raised at their fundraiser and basically like send a check to, you know, this organization that has just been set up to help, uh, you know, gay men who are, you know, living with AIDS, right? And so the leather community, I'm sure if you look back in the history of AIDS Project Los Angeles, like in the first 36 months of their existence, a lot of their revenue was, you know, money raised by the satyrs or, you know, leather community organizations in Los Angeles. Now, I want to point out one thing is because just the, the, the way that we've been talking about, like sort of the unification of, of the community and kind of, I guess, coming out of the closet, I don't want to say coming out of the closet, but coming out of hiding. And we have like things like the Leatherman's Handbook and other publications. We have the premiere of the Leather Pride flag. And then now we have this global crisis of AIDS. In what ways did AIDS unify the community even more and bring light to like these other subsets of people like the leather community, for example? You know, I would, uh, I had my first sexual experience with another man in 1980 when I was 15 years old and I really liked it. And so, you know, I sought that out and, and found it. And six months later, a couple of months, more than six months, but anyway, uh, July 5th in 1981 in the New York Times, like buried deep in the paper was an article, uh, cases of rare cancer found in 41 homosexual men. So I basically had less than a year of experience as a sexually active gay man before it, the AIDS was upon us, right? And so it's it's literally like tracked me all of my life, you know? The best way I think I can convey to you like what it's like is sometimes sit down and imagine, you know, going to the bullet bar, right? 
And you walk in the door and all the people you say hi to and all the people that say hi to you, you know, and whether you know their names or not, you know, maybe like the guy that wears the neon yellow harness, right? The really hot guy who's always there with his boyfriend. So I never get a chance to talk to him, right? But just like make a list of all those people, you know? And then when you run out of names uh, or descriptions, go through the list and like cross off every fourth name and then rewrite the list except for the names you crossed off and just imagine what your life would be like without those people going forward, right? And that was basically like what my life, what my gay life was like. And it was, and when people disappeared, that's literally what they would do. It wasn't like, like, the world stopped because George is dying of AIDS. It was just sort of like you didn't see George at the bar on Saturday night. And next weekend, you didn't see him again. And you didn't even have to ask, you know, what happened to him. So that was an incredibly difficult time to live through. And the people that you clung to to get you through that, indif- that difficult time you know, were your leather brothers who were going through the exact same thing you were, and they were the people who really understood. But even then, it was it was so terrifying that it wasn't a thing that you were dealing with with your rational mind. And it was just sort of like a clinging to each other, you know? Wait, I, I guess I was giving my next question. I mean, was this like being on the Titanic sinking, like, or did, how, how do you get through something like that? Did, did we even know at that point, like how it spread and how to not contract and spread the virus? Or what, did you go about life as normal and just hope you didn't get it? I mean, how did you navigate all of that? Uh, mostly by pretending it wasn't happening, you know? Um, it, yeah, mostly by, I mean, I was, you know, and there, like, there wasn't a lot of good information out there. You know, there, even though there actually was Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, back then, um, but he wasn't given any kind of a platform. You know, it going through COVID last year this time, you know, every day, Gavin Newsom, our governor, would give a news conference and here's everything we know about COVID in California, and here's what we need to be doing, and here's what steps we're taking and everything else like that. There was none of that ever, 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 ever with the AIDS crisis, right? You had to seek out information, and it's sort of like seeking out information on how many people with mental health issues in your neighborhood also own a lot of guns, right? It's like, I want to know this, but I really don't want to know this. You know, if I'm going to have my shit together enough to go to work every day, no, I actually don't want to know this. So there was information out there. It was kind of hard to find and you had to hear it a bunch of times before it would sink in. But what you did know was that there were people that were there for you, you know? 
uh, that we're going through the same thing that you were. And even though you might not talk about what you're all going through, they understood. And when it got too much, they were there for you. I can understand how going through this thing together, especially like initially being a part of a secret club, it unifying and then going through this crisis together and having to cling to each other, how you would find like such deep, meaningful relationships within leather and like finding that sort of thing that just magnetizes you to each other. We have about 15 minutes left for our discussion. I want to open up afterwards for just a few questions from audience members and to talk a little bit more about our fundraising. But I do want to know a little bit more about your involvement with ACT UP. Could you explain to our listeners what ACT UP was and your story with them? Yeah, I, uh, I was actually still in college. And this would be like 1986, 1987. Uh, well, no, it started in 87. So like 1987, 1988, I graduated in, in 87. So like that the year afterwards. But anyway, there's like no information out there. You know, I had heard at some point that, you know, it's sexually transmitted. Although like that meant don't have sex with men. And that wasn't something that I thought I could, you know, hold to but not a lot of good information on how to have sex safely or safer with men. Not that got to me in Reading, Pennsylvania anyway. But anyway, I read, I used to read uh, The Village Voice, which was this community newspaper out of New York City. And they started covering this brand new group that formed called ACT UP, A-C-T-U-P, which was the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. and they basically were, well, according to their little mission statement or whatever, uh, ACT UP is a diverse, nonpartisan group of individuals united in our anger and committed to direct action to end the AIDS crisis, right? And it was the first thing I read about AIDS that didn't scare the living shit out of me. The first thing that I read and thought, oh, this means I'm going to die, you know? Um, it was people taking action. It was queer people taking action to end the AIDS crisis. And when I moved to Philadelphia a year later, and I saw on a lamppost this piece of this poster saying, first meeting of Act Up Philadelphia all invited, I went. And when I moved to New York a year later, one of the first things I did was join ACT UP uh, in New York City, you know, which was where the whole movement started. And now there was tons of information, tons of really, really, really good information that I was exposed to given every Monday night when ACT UP met. And also, I could do something, you know, I could take action. And that saved me. It's uh, like that the absolute first time, everything is out of your control. Nobody knows what's going on. And like for once in your life, along this AIDS crisis, there's one thing that you can do that's in your control and you're united in that voice. What a beacon of hope that must have been for you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it was also, you know, it was 
literally, it was empowering. It made people, it made me feel powerful. And I actually, during the 1990s, I was working for a member of the New York City Council. And through my work with Councilmember Duane, I basically put together this piece of legislation that provided a sort of like level of support for all New Yorkers uh, who are living with HIV and AIDS in terms of a guarantee of medically appropriate housing and income and health care guaranteed by the city of New York and got that through the New York City Council. And I'm not telling you about this to like, oh my God, what a great guy I am. Um, although I'm pretty proud of that, right? But I'm one of so many people who through act because of ACT UP felt themselves empowered to like, what fucking thing can I do that will change things uh, for people who are living with HIV and AIDS, you know? Right, it prompted you to take action. Um, Unleashing power, you know, the power of collective action to make things happen. Absolutely. Well, Drew, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And before we go, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about your book, your upcoming book called The 20th Century Leatherman, An Argument, a History, and a Love Story. It's it's not out yet. We're in the, the editing phase of things, but I'm hoping to have it ready by claw. 2021 in Los Angeles in November. You know, essentially it's, I give different names to people, but it's kind of my leather life. You know, it's the leather life that I've lived and the experiences that I've had and the relationships and the friendships that have come my way because of leather. And I was actually talking to somebody and I started out really enthusiastic. Yeah, I can't believe I have a book coming out. And then I felt like this panic because I, because it's not just a book. It's, it's sort of like, you know, I'm here, take my diary, read my diary, you know, let me know what you think. And I've, I've written a lot of things all my life and, you know, given them to people to read. And sometimes I'm onto something and people are like, oh, wow, I like that. But sometimes people are like, yeah, okay. There's a lot of words there. Okay. You know, it's like, okay, so I missed the mark. And I put so much of myself in the book that I'm really kind of like dreading people, even people I don't know, like reading the book and what the fuck have I done? But the wheels are in motion at this point. So now, the way that you um, narrate this book is this. Like, do you give different names to, to the characters? Is this, like, told as a story or, like, a memoir? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a love story. Um, in 1980, um, a 19-year-old guy named Ryan, uh, who takes the bus into New York City to go to acting lessons, finds his way into the New York Eagle. Um, with a leather vest that he bought that same day. And at the bar, he meets a man named Farley. And Farley puts handcuffs on him and 
puts him in a taxi cab and makes Ryan give him a blowjob on the way back to Farley's apartment on the Upper West Side. And then it goes through their relationship up until the present day uh, in Palm Springs, California. That's awesome. And I don't want to put you on the spot or anything, but um, do you have any passages from your book that you'd like to share with us? Oh, I didn't prepare for that. I, <laughs> I told you I put you I'd, on the spot. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to like go offline. No, no, up. no. That's totally <laughs> fine. <laughs> well, uh, Drew, any last statements for our audience? Because of leather, I have had this really incredible life. You know, I have met people. I have spent time with people. I have had experiences that I could not have had otherwise. And I just think that leather can be for anyone, just this opening up of possibilities of what your life can be. Well, I want to thank you again, Drew, for coming on the show. How can we stay connected with you? How can we reach out? Uh, Do you have your social media handles ready to go? Um, I am basically, oh, I have a, a Tumblr feed where I post dirty pictures that I like at bald built stash spelled as one word b-a-l-d-b-u-i-l-t-s-t-a-c-h-e on tumblr uh on recon I'm crush k-r-r-r-u-s-h and there's always good old facebook where I am drew d kramer k-r-a-m-e-r in palm springs california Awesome. Well, we're going to give you a silent Zoom round of applause. Drew, thank you so much for being here and open and just so transparent and willing to share with us. We really, really appreciate you. I'm now going to hand off the mic to Miss Sanctuary Leather 2020, Queen Anna Elgos. Well, that concludes our live broadcast with Drew Kramer on the topic of leather history. Keep an eye out for an episode released later this week on Reach LA, and do stay tuned for next week's episode, where we will discuss the topics of kink and BDSM with Queen Anna Elgos, Mr. Cyan, and Master Joshua. Our next Leather Talk Zoom party will be held Tuesday, August 3rd at 9pm Pacific Standard Time. To find out more about that and much more, you can always find me on Instagram and Patreon as Leather Talk Mr. Bullet, and Twitter as Branded Bullet LA. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay kinky.